0: Hello, and welcome to this FRDH podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. Belatedly, given the general crudeness that has slowly been drowning American civic life for decades, civility has become a hot topic, and it seems to be reaching a crisis. What started with Sarah Sanders being politely asked to leave a restaurant a couple of weeks ago has escalated to Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell being hounded from one. The sense of panic among opinion formers is palpable. Political website ran an essay by Rutgers University professor David Greenberg with the headline, Here's what happened the last time the left got nasty, next to a photo of the townhouse on West 11th Street in Manhattan, just after members of the Weather Underground blew themselves up trying to make a bomb. That was back in 1970. Yes, Politico, it is a short journey from politely asking Donald Trump's press secretary to leave a restaurant to blowing stuff up. America's crisis of civility, and it is a crisis, has been a journey of at least three decades. It's a Republican concept. It begins with the idea that America is engaged in a second civil war, a metaphorical one, so the weapons are words rather than rifles. Political language needed to be reborn, like an old rifle, to fire these metaphors at the heart of the enemy. The leader of the word army of the new Confederacy was Georgia Congressman Newt Gingrich. In 1988, Gingrich gave a speech at the right-wing propaganda mill, the Heritage Foundation. He said, This war has to be fought with a scale and a duration and a savagery that is only true of civil wars. The war was against liberalism whatever that is. Gingrich practiced what he preached. He attacked and attacked and attacked. Verbally, of course, like Donald Trump, he talks a good fight, but skips the real ones. He wrote student deferments to avoid Vietnam service. In 1990, GOPAC, his political action committee, published a memo on just how to use uncivil language to fight the new civil war. It was titled, Language, a Key Mechanism of Control. Democrats were to be described with these words relentlessly, and I quote, decay, traitors, radical, sick, destroy, pathetic, corrupt, and shame. To describe Republicans, use words like, and I quote, truth, moral, crusade, movement, children, family. The memo added, the words in this paper are tested language from a recent series of focus groups where we actually tested ideas and language. The person doing the testing was the Republican pollster and TV talking head, Frank Luntz. At precisely the same time Gingrich and Luntz were redefining what was acceptable rhetoric in public life, the Federal Communications Commission eliminated the Fairness Doctrine in American broadcasting. The Fairness Doctrine required broadcasters to present honest, equitable, and balanced airing of political views. With the Fairness Doctrine eliminated, radio talk show host Rush Limbaugh, then working at a station in Sacramento, California, declared himself liberated, cranked up the outrage, and within a year was installed in New York at WABC with national distribution. Gingrich's war on civil discourse was echoed by Limbaugh's language. In 1994, when the Gingrich-led Republicans won control of the House of Representatives, Limbaugh was invited to Capitol Hill, where he was made an honorary member of the GOP caucus. Up to that moment, Gingrich was seen as an irritant by the older generation of Republicans in Congress and as an annoying clown by Democrats and media pundits. But nothing succeeds like success. Now Speaker of the House, second in line for the presidency, should disaster strike, Gingrich was taken seriously and asked serious questions. Why do you use such uncivil language? Gingrich, who briefly taught history at West Georgia State College, would laughingly remind interviewers that America has a proud history of harsh political rhetoric. Thomas Jefferson and John Adams had to endure much worse than his pungent attacks on liberals. No interviewer, to my knowledge, followed up by pointing out that Jefferson and Adams lived in an infinitely harsher time, where children worked, slavery was accepted, and life was truly nasty, brutish, and short. So why would he want to emulate the language of those days? That's the origin story on contemporary political incivility, and its corollary in political life, ideological inflexibility. The American system was designed to take into account that political factions would form, and it offers mechanisms to minimize their impact through compromise. But those mechanisms mean nothing without a willingness to use them. If one of the two parties that have evolved over the nation's history chooses to declare metaphorical civil war and prosecute it without tolerance for the other side, it leaves the country ungovernable. Tolerance tolerance is the key not just to america but to the whole of the modern world tolerance of different political points of view of different religions of different ethnicities all living within the same national boundaries the foundation texts of the enlightenment written by baruch spinoza and john locke emphasize the need for society to tolerate different points of view without it there's nothing but the war of all against all And you have to remember that Spinoza and Locke wrote about tolerance in a Europe that had just lived through a century and a half of such a war. The wars of religion had seen millions die as a result of not only battle, but societal breakdown. Tolerance, toleration, became the essential feature of democratic societies. The First Amendment guarantees of free speech, press, and worship is the practical expression of Spinoza and Locke's liberating and liberal idea, Tolerance of other religious views and political opinions, philosophical ideas. But tolerance contains a paradox. Unlimited tolerance must lead to the disappearance of tolerance. If we extend unlimited tolerance even to those who are intolerant, if we are not prepared to defend a tolerant society against the onslaught of the intolerant, then the tolerant will be destroyed and tolerance with them. Those words were written during World War II by philosopher Karl Popper. Popper was born in the first decade of the 20th century into the emancipated and assimilated Austrian-Jewish bourgeoisie, the same milieu as Ludwig Wittgenstein. I write about it extensively in my book Emancipation. With the rise of Nazism... Popper realized he needed to get out of Vienna, and eventually got an academic appointment in New Zealand, and so missed out on a train journey to Auschwitz. Popper's primary interest was philosophy of science, but while in New Zealand, with his birth continent consumed by the war of all against all, he worked on a political treatise, The Open Society and Its Enemies, in which he defined the tolerance paradox, How should an open society deal with those who speak intolerant words, who preach intolerance, who use words like decay, traitors, radical, sick, destroy, pathetic, corrupt, and shame on political opponents, whose actions negate all compromise, and who, for example, violate more than a century of constitutional custom by denying a presidential nominee to the Supreme Court the courtesy of a hearing? Popper doesn't ask the question that way, obviously, but he does offer an answer. Quote, We should claim the right to suppress them if necessary, even by force, for it may easily turn out that they are not prepared to meet us on the level of rational argument, but begin by denouncing all argument. They may forbid their followers to listen to rational argument because it is deceptive and teach them to answer arguments by the use of their fists or pistols. We should therefore claim, in the name of tolerance, the right not to tolerate the intolerant, When I look at my Twitter feed, I begin to see the outlines of a movement by the tolerant to not tolerate the intolerant. When I read about various functionaries in Donald Trump's regime being confronted by members of the public as they try to have a pleasant meal out, I see a rather bloodless way of not tolerating the intolerant. And when I see these actions, branded uncivil by people who should know better, I think about Sidney Lumet's film The Hill. You may never have heard of it. It isn't as well known as Lumet's great films of the 70s and 80s, Serpico, Dog Day Afternoon, Network, and The Verdict, but I think it's a neglected masterpiece. The story is simple. It's set in a British prison stockade in North Africa. The inmates are abused by the chief jailer and his sadistic henchmen. The chief punishment is to run up an enormous hill made of sand in the middle of the prison yard with a full pack on your back. If that doesn't sound like a punishment, remember the prison is under the broiling North African sun. The camp CO and medical officer are weak and have ceded their authority to the sadists. Into the midst of this hell is marched Sean Connery, an army lifer, a sergeant major, who is in prison for refusing to follow an officer's command. His reasons for disobedience were sound. He's not by nature a rebel. A lot of plot twists and turns ensue as the newly imprisoned Connery becomes an inmate leader through his ability to take punishment. Eventually, the Camp C.O. realizes he has to take action against the sadists, but it's too late for the crueler of them. He has been dragged into one of the cells and is in the process of being beaten to death as Connery pleads with his fellow inmates not to kill him. We've won, he cries desperately. Don't do it. We've won. And the film ends. Maybe it's because I was young when I saw The Hill, just 15, and hypersensitive to any story about heroic defiance of mindless authority. It was the mid-60s, after all. But the film has always remained vivid in my memory. Not for its melodramatic intensity or Sean Connery's performance, the one that proved he could really act and wasn't just a James Bond, but it remains vivid because it poses the liberal dilemma and the paradox of tolerance— although at the age of 15 I hadn't heard of Karl Popper. How far can you accept intolerant behaviors, unjust actions, the rational overwhelmed by the irrational, the minority imposing its will? These are critical questions in America today. But the biggest question is the liberal one. How do you fight back? With what force? Does civility even have a place in an uncivil era that has been going on for 30 years? Asking someone to leave a restaurant, tweeting an insult, seems to me these are very mild, indeed civil, responses. What is the alternative? Civil blood makes civil hands unclean. How to solve the paradox? How to claim, in the name of tolerance, the right not to tolerate the intolerant. That's the ultimate question of our time. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. By the way, if you've never seen The Hill, it's definitely worth a look. Let me know what you think by contacting me at the website www.goldfarbpod.com. And while you're there, please make a donation to keep these podcasts coming. Thanks.